The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Today's passage reveals a wonderful and blessed truth to us, and let me state it at the outset. This passage reveals to us that the creator of the universe, the Lord, can be known, he can be known personally, and he can be known intimately. That is breathtaking. The creator of the universe can be known, he can be known personally, and he can be known intimately. So the title of today's sermon is Seeing God's Glory. And if you're not there yet, we're going to continue in the passage that our brother read. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 87. Exodus 33 and 34 is our focus this morning. Last Sunday, we left off with what was the lowest point in Israel's history, at least in the book of Exodus, and the highest point in Moses' history in the book of Exodus. That was the lowest point was when Israel betrayed the Lord with the golden calf, making a false idol and worshiping it. Moses, in his highest point, offers himself as mediator and as substitute. And in today's passage, as Jim just read for us, Moses puts his finger on what makes life worth the living. It is the presence of God. Moses wonderfully says, if you're going to let us go to the promised land, but you won't come with us, then I don't even want to go. It's your presence that makes it worth the going. So today's passage Now we're going to continue that in Exodus 33. And the first thing we're going to notice, if you have a bulletin, this is number one. The Lord, or Moses requests to see the Lord's glory. Number one, Moses requests to see the Lord's glory. Now he'll do that in verse 18. But first back up with me just to verse 12. I know this was just read for us, but I want you to see how the conversation is beginning. So verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. What does he mean? Who are you going to send with me? Don't forget when God first came to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter three, Moses said, I can't go to Egypt. I need you to send someone with me. And the Lord said, you have me. That's enough. And Moses said, I am not ready to trust that much. Can you give me someone else? And do you remember who Moses was given? his brother Aaron, right? But now at the end of chapter 32, Aaron is terribly compromised. He's the one who helped build the golden calf. Now do you understand why Moses is asking the question here? Who's going to come? Aaron's out, apparently. So who's going to come with me? But now we know Moses is not the same man he was in chapter 3. Here in chapter 33, he's able to say, Lord, as long as you come with me, then that's all I need. Praise the Lord for what the Lord has done in the heart of Moses. And that's why the rest of the verse says, you have said, I know you by name and that I found favor in your sight. Both of those phrases are worth explaining. When Moses says, the Lord now knows me by name, what does he mean? Of course, he he doesn't mean that the Lord has just learned that his name is Moses. The Lord is fully aware of this. So what does it mean when you're able to speak someone's name, it means that you know them in a level of intimacy. One Old Testament commentator writes it this way, for God to know someone by name means that God has a relationship of acceptance and friendship with this person. 
We just saw in the verses that he read that Moses, this is before the tabernacle was built. Moses is meeting at a tent. The cloud of glory descends and God spoke to him like a friend would speak to you face to face. But now Moses desires more. Verse 13. Now, therefore, based on this relationship of grace that I have, favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you. Moses is praying a wonderful prayer. Lord, I want to know you better. How God will answer this is the most important thing for us, for our consideration today. But I want you to notice that the Lord finds Moses' desire a good desire. So let's continue in the passage. As he wants to know him by name, we notice the Lord's response. But let's pick up down in verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. If you have the NIV in front of you, rather than the ESV, it says, I will do this thing you asked because I am pleased with you. That helpfully conveys what's happening. The Lord is pleased when we want to know him better. The Lord wants us to want to know him better, even his own people to want to know him better. The timing is helpful to remember as well. At this moment, it appears that everything is falling apart. And yet Moses realized the most important need when it seems like your world is falling apart is to see God's glory, to know the Lord better. God wants us to know him better because God wants our heart. As parents, we similarly Relate Proverbs 23, verse 26 is helpful. It says, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Moses says, Lord, I want to know your ways. The Lord says, I'm pleased that you want to know me better. I want you to know my heart and observe my ways as any good father would. So now let's look in verse 18. Here's the key question. Moses said, please show me your glory. Here's what I think is interesting about that. East of Eden, so since the Garden of Eden, no one has had more privy to God's glory than Moses. No one. I mean, Moses saw the glory of the Lord in the burning bush. Moses saw the feet of the Lord in Exodus 24 when the Lord's glory was revealed on the mountain and they all looked down. Moses entered the cloud of God's presence for 40 days. Moses met at the makeshift tent and the cloud of God's glory descended on him. How is it that Moses, who saw more of God's glory than anybody else, is now asking, Lord, will you please show me your glory? Is it not because the Lord has infinite, exhaustible glory? There's a great lesson for us here. This is not the beginning of Moses's relationship with Yahweh. This is Moses wanting to know the Lord even better still. And the more complex the object, the more complex the knowing of it, the more complex the growing in our knowledge of it. I've recommended to you before um, J.I. Packer's really helpful book, Knowing God. So some of these thoughts are, are from him, but he really helped me when he reminds us that there's a degree of complexity based on the degree of the object that you're trying to get to know. If you're learning a concept at school, it may take attention and effort, but the way you learn it is fairly straightforward. But if you're learning something that's a living thing, that's a little more complex. Imagine you're going for a walk and you notice a dog 
and its owner coming around the corner and you say, uh, we should go to the other side of the street because I know that dog. What you mean by that is I've seen past behavior by that living thing. And in similar circumstances, this is what it has done. Now, if you try to get to know a fellow person, though, it's even more complex because humans keep secrets. Sometimes not even intentionally. We're not totally sure how to convey all the things going on in our heart and mind. This is why you could know somebody for years and at the end say, I really never knew them at all. In fact, if you're trying to get to know someone who you respect and esteem a lot, you understand almost intuitively that the only way you'll get to know them is if they choose to be open to you. Imagine someone you hold in high regard, maybe someone in high position, high estate, and you have the opportunity to have coffee with them. And when you go out with them, you have all these questions you want to ask them, but you realize in that moment, unless they choose to confide in you, unless they choose to open themselves to you, you really will not know them very well. That's what makes Moses' question put us on the edge of our seat. If we were to ask God, God, can you show me your glory? God, can I know you better? It's totally up to him whether or not he'll reveal all the complexities of who he is. This is why the answer is so exhilarating. In verse 19, God said, I will. Praise God that the Lord in his grace and mercy is willing to make himself known. Unless he makes himself known, we could not know him. But now notice there's a shift in the verbiage. Moses said in verse 18, Lord, show me your glory. But what did the Lord say he would show him in verse 19? He says, I will make all my goodness. This is very important because at least in this passage, the Lord makes clear that his understanding of his own glory is that he is always good. Have you ever heard the phrase, God is good all the time? And what's the response? All the time, God is good. This is how the Lord understands his own glory. Here's why I think this has been helpful for me even this week. If you had asked me prior to this week, Josh, how would you define the glory of God? I would have said the glory of God is the weight and the worth of God. And that's true because the Hebrew word is kabad and it means that something is heavy and it has value. It'd be similar to our English word matter. The word matter speaks to density and space, but it also speaks to import if something matters. But now, as of this week, I've been corrected by the scriptures to add more to my definition. The Lord doesn't simply say that he is glory, but he ties glory to his goodness. So now my definition is not merely that God's glory is his weight and his worth, but it is God's weight and his worth shown in his wonder. All that makes God good, inexpressibly, incalculably, infinitely good. The glory of God, John Piper writes, is his infinite beauty and the greatness of his manifold perfections. This is right. The Lord is saying, all my goodness in grace, I will proclaim to you. Notice verse 19 says, his goodness will pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. He is further filling in who he is by declaring what he is. So all the descriptions we're about to read indicate that the Lord is good. So let's continue now in verse 19. I will be gracious 
to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The Lord is saying this about himself tied to his goodness. Is not God good that he would show mercy on anyone? Is not God gracious that he would choose to be gracious to anyone? This is how the Lord expresses his own goodness. He is free. He is sovereign. He is not externally compelled. And yet, he will choose to be gracious and choose to be merciful because he internally desires to. Look in verse 20. But the Lord said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Now this is still unpacking his goodness. Because God is good, he is willing to let Moses see a portion, the back perspective of his glory. Verse 23, then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Well, here's a recurring theme that we've noticed in the Bible in many places. Humans cannot see God's face and live. In this interesting passage in chapter, in verses 20 through 22, we read this amazing and memorable occurrence where the Lord hides Moses in the cleft of a rock and covers him with his hand. Actually, the Hebrew word is the palm of your hand. Uh, we have another newborn in, in our house, and so when he is in his room sleeping, my goal is to make sure that nothing breaks in and wakes him, which would be bad for all of us. <laughs> and so I might walk by his room when the light is luminous in the hallway, but his room is dark. And with just the palm of my hand, I could cover the keyhole so the light does not break through and disturb him. Now think in this passage, who is protecting Moses with his hand? The Lord. But what is he protecting Moses from? The Lord. God is protecting Moses from God. See, the passage is telling us what it showed us from the very beginning of Genesis 3. Our sin makes us incompatible in the presence of God. Has not the tabernacle revealed that with the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant and etched into the curtains? Here Moses is shown it again. Moses, yes, you believe in me, and yes, you would like to know me, but actually, Moses, you need to understand there's an incompatibility between God and humans. We understand this in part when we think of the incompatibility of everyday items with which we're familiar. Think of AC and DC currents that are incompatible. Or more clearly, because of the metaphor God already used, think of fire and water. And the larger amount of the one, the more it will consume the other. If you have a raging, massive fire and you have a little tiny puddle of water, it'll vaporize and evaporate the water. If you have a little wick of flame and you have a massive deluge of water, it'll destroy the little wick. 
God is infinitely, majestically glorious, holy, and good. And here, finite, fallen human being is just this little wick. Hebrews tells us rightly, our God is a consuming fire. We are incompatible in his presence. I wonder if you've ever realized that every day that you've lived and gone to sleep and woken up again, it is because God's palm has preserved your life. You are only alive because in his goodness, he has restrained his glory from breaking out against you. We have all experienced this. God's glory can only ever be revealed in his goodness. And in his goodness, he allows us to live. But here he'll reveal himself further yet. So let's pick up in chapter 34. Don't forget the context. Moses says, show me your glory. The Lord says, I will in part. So now 34. We'll read 1 through 4 quickly because they just set up what's happening. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. I'll write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. Let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Don't miss this. The Lord is still revealing his goodness. How good is the Lord? He renews the covenant to covenant breakers. That's how good he is. Now verse 5, though, he directly fulfills Moses' request. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Stick with me here. The Lord does not have an appearance. He is immortal and invisible. He is a spirit. So if he's going to reveal himself... He must reveal himself through words. Stick with me further. Moses had seen the Lord at a burning bush. Moses had seen the Lord at a cloud. Now that Moses wants to know the Lord better, the Lord uses word. The best way to know the Lord is through his self-revelation recorded in word. So notice here in verse 5, the Lord is going to proclaim who he is. That is the best way to know him. Let me go further. To know God is to know him personally through objective propositions. It is not to know him subjectively through intuitions, inklings, or man-made imagery. That is what we cannot do if we want to know the Lord. He must reveal himself through word. Do not diminish how great it is to know God through word. That is the best and most intimate way to know him. Reverend Childs writes, The revelation of God is in terms of his attributes rather than his appearance. And his attributes are only made knowable as he speaks them. Now the next two verses, 6 and 7... I can't stand that they're broken up into two verses. (laughs) They really should be one. They are the most quoted verse in the entire Old Testament. Over a dozen times, this verse will come up again. David will repeat it repeatedly through the Psalter. 
Joel will quote it in Joel 2.13. Jonah begrudgingly admits it in Jonah chapter 4. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, if anyone wants to know what is God like, this is what they quote. Who is God? This is what they quote. I cannot tell you how important it is to highlight verse 6 and 7 in your copy of God's word. This is how God reveals himself to be best known through word. Verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now that I've read them, let's explain them one section at a time. The commas are, I think, in the right places so that we can take them a line at a time. First, the Lord is merciful and gracious. This is God's tender compassion on people who do not deserve it. Next, the Lord is slow to anger. This is God's great patience with sinners. Next, the Lord is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's only two words in Hebrew. Emmet, truth, and kesed, grace, or loyal love. The next phrase says he keeps steadfast love for thousands. This is God's loyal love towards those who are his that God continues from the beginning to the end. God commits himself to love those who he makes his own and he never fails to bring that to fruition. And here's how he does it. The final phrase, forgiving. And what does he forgive? And we get three descriptions. He forgives iniquity, the Hebrew word avon. This is a word that means to turn aside from what's right and good. He forgives rebellion or transgression, pesha. It's a word that means high-handed defiance. It means to break and betray a relationship you had. And then finally, he forgives sin, chita, which is the catch-all term in Hebrew. Here's what the Bible is telling us. God forgives all types of sin. All sin. So then how do we explain the remainder of the verse? Let's keep going in verse 7. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Let's explain those phrases and then talk about how they fit together. First, the phrases themselves. He will not clear the guilty. He is so just, he will not overlook sin, and he will not wink at unrighteousness. The the final phrase is perhaps the most vexing to you. What does that mean, that he will visit the iniquity of fathers on children's children? Does that mean God will punish great-grandchildren for what their great-grandparents did? The answer is no. I'll quote Old Testament scholar Douglas Stewart. It's a little bit long of a quote. It does not mean God would punish children and grandchildren for something their ancestors did, but something they themselves continued to do. It described God's just punishment on a given type of sin as it continues generationally and is repeated. God is reminding his people here that they should not think that they can get away with what their previous generations have already been punished for. That's the point of the verse. But now how do we make sense of it? I mean, verse 6 
says he has steadfast love. And the beginning of verse 7 says he forgives sin. And the end of verse 7 says he does not forgive sin. Did you notice our English translations think this is a paradox? The ESV writes, but who will by no means clear the guilty. The NIV writes, yet who will by no means clear the guilty. The Hebrew is actually just the normal word and. A good translation would be at the same time. (laughs) So God says, I'm the God who forgives the iniquity and at the same time will not clear the guilty. This is not a contradiction. It is a tension. God is infinitely compassionate and forgiving and at the same time, God is infinitely committed not to clear the guilty. What holds these two things in tension? The answer God already gave us, God's goodness. Why can't God clear someone who's guilty? Because he's too good. Why can't he just overlook sin and act like it never happened? Because he's too good. He's just. Why can't God just detach himself and let the world be condemned? What causes him to care enough to pursue anybody? Why is he gracious on anyone? The answer, he's good. That's why he's loving and compassionate. You might say, Josh, okay, but I still disagree with you. God can't have it all. It's got to be one or the other. Maybe he's perfectly just, and if so, he's going to condemn everybody. Or maybe he's perfectly loving, and then he'll just, you know, pursue everybody. But I think he's maybe a little bit of both. How could it be that he's all of both? I mean, in the text, he says, I'm going to let all my goodness. How can he be infinitely just and infinitely gracious? Do you know what the answer is? Moses only saw him from the back. Imagine someone robs a store and they're running out and the detective gathers eyewitnesses and he gathers the eyewitness and he says, what did you observe? And the eyewitness says, I saw this guy running away, but I never saw his face. What the eyewitness is telling you is I saw true attributes about this person, true descriptions about this person, but I have key qualities about them that I do not know. I did not see their face. To see God from the back means you know him truly, but you do not know him fully. You know tensions, but you don't know how they reconcile. The Lord is full of love and he'll forgive. The Lord is full of truth and he will not clear the guilty. How can he be both? Moses only saw him from the back, but then, thousands of years later, God showed his face. I wish I could spend all morning with you on John chapter 1. John 1 intentionally evokes the language of Exodus. These very chapters, beginning in verse 14. The Word became flesh. The Word is the eternal God, the Son. The Word became flesh and dwelt. The Greek word is tabernacled. Tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory. Glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of... Emmet and Kesed, grace and truth. The law was given through Moses. The law was a good thing, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side, but through the word, he has made him known. See, what Moses saw from the back, attention without full reconciling, God showed from the front, when he revealed the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
And the fact that God forgives the guilty but will not forgive the guilty is made clear on the cross. On the cross, God the Son is condemned, and that way God can justly condemn the guilty. But on the cross, Jesus Christ dies in the place of the guilty, and in that way God can be loving and forgive the guilty. How does God forgive and not forgive? The answer is on the cross. He himself takes the punishment of sinners. That way our guilt is atoned, and he himself takes it, and that way he is loving to those who don't deserve it. So today, if you want to see God's beauty, you should look at Jesus' face. I want to press the point that God's beauty is not one or the other. It is all. Have you ever been to churches, I know I have, where God is presented as permissive, who overlooks wickedness and celebrates us just the way we are? Is that beautiful? Does that capture your heart? No. Have you been to churches, I know I have, where God throws down firebolts and he hopes that maybe we can get better, and if you're really, really good, then one day maybe you'll escape some of his wrath. Is that beautiful? No. The beauty is that God is just and love, and he takes it for us on the cross. God is full of grace and truth. So what do we do when we encounter beauty like that? If you looked up a philosophical definition of an encounter of beauty, here's the definition from the internet. An encounter of beauty creates a feeling of overwhelming meaningfulness. Have you ever stood at the ocean while the sun is setting? laid out at night under a panorama of stars, and whatever your beliefs were before that moment, you think, you know what? I don't think life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. I think something real happened here. And life is worth living, and something big is transcendently true. And you just saw a speck made by the person who spoke it into existence. If you see the person... Look at verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And brothers and sisters, he only saw the back. Now that we've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, what ought we to do when we see grace and truth at the cross? See, here's the glory of God God does forgive. But God does not clear the guilty. God says his son to die for the guilty so that through faith in him, the guilty can be saved. This is the saving grace of God. Moses says, I want to know you better. The Lord says, I'll show you my goodness. But now I want you to notice how when you encounter the Lord, you can never be the same. The rest of Exodus 34 shares so many repeated elements that we don't need to study it. God restates the Ten Commandments. He reworks the entire covenant. There are only two things that are different. The first one is in 14. Would you look down in verse 14 of Exodus 34? You shall worship no other God. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. 
in the Ten Commandments, in the second commandment, the one where you're not supposed to make graven images, God said that he was a jealous God. But throughout the book of Exodus, especially if you've been here on Sunday mornings, there are several key moments where the Lord says, I am this, Yahweh Nisi, the Lord provides. I am this, the Lord, our banner. I am this, the Lord who is the self-existent one. Now he does another one. I am the Lord who is jealous. If you're new to the Bible, you could be upset by that. Is God saying that he's sinful? I don't want to worship a God who's sinful. But of course, don't forget, there's just as there's a righteous kind of anger and then a lot more sinful kinds of anger, there's a righteous kind of jealousy and then a lot more sinful kinds of jealousy. The righteous kind of jealousy, anybody who's married easily understands. You're jealous for your spouse in a way that you have a relationship with them that no one else ought to have in the exact same way as you have with them. This is in part what the Lord means. I am jealous for those who are mine. We have an exclusive relationship. But the Lord means a second thing as well. And some translations take it this way. The Lord is jealous for his own name because his name is the name of grace and truth. His name is the name of mercy and love and glory and goodness. And just like newspaper journalists who will continue to spotlight a story because they're zealous for the truth, so the Lord is jealous to protect his own character, and he does. So the first new element of Exodus 34 is if you know the Lord, you know him in an exclusive relationship in which he remains the Lord. But here's the second new element. Look down in verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Now Moses has seen God's glory before with a burning bush and a cloud. His face never glowed then. It's glowing now because now the Lord has spoken who he is. One commentator writes, this revelation leaves Moses fundamentally changed and it's reflected in his own appearance. Did you know 2 Corinthians 3 says the same thing? 2 Corinthians 3 talks about how Moses came down the mountain and his face was glowing, but then it eventually stopped glowing. But now today, we behold with unveiled face the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And here's what the text says. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So here's the second element that it shows. If you encounter God's glory, it changes you. Those who know the Lord know him exclusively in a way that they don't relate to anyone else. But also those who know the Lord are always transformed by truly knowing the Lord. Jeremiah 9 verse 24 says, Let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me. Knowing God is a relationship calculated to thrill our hearts. At the beginning of the sermon, we pose this. You can know the Lord that is amazing to know him intimately and personally and transformationally. Let me quote now J.I. Packer. What happens? The almighty creator, the Lord of hosts, the great God before whom the nations are a drop in a bucket. What happens is he comes to you and begins to talk to you through the words and truths of Holy Scripture. 
Perhaps you've been acquainted with the Bible and Christian truth for many years, and it meant very little to you. But then one day, you wake up to the fact that God is actually speaking to you. To you, through the biblical message. And as you listen to what God is saying, you find yourself brought very low. For God talks to you about your sin and guilt and weakness and blindness and folly and compels you to judge yourself hopeless and helpless and to cry out for forgiveness. But this is not all. You come to realize as you listen that God is actually opening his heart to you, making friends with you and enlisting you as a colleague. In the passage that was read at the beginning, Moses by himself walked to the edge of the camp And God spoke face to face with only him as a friend. Everybody else stayed at their own tent. But here's what Jesus says in John 15, verse 15, to all of his disciples. No longer do I call you servants because a servant does not know what his master is doing. I call you friends. For all that I've heard from the Father, I have made known to you. Have you ever wanted to know God as friend? You can, through the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This morning, let's go to him in prayer. God, I thank you that you are knowable because in your mercy, you choose to open yourself to us. We have all known people that it felt impossible to get to know them. Perhaps we hoped we would become friends with them, And after five or six attempts of pulling teeth, we gave up. And yet here you have breathed out who you are in the Bible and preserved it so that we can know you. So that we can know you not academically, but personally. Not distantly, but intimately. And you've actually given us more glory than you gave Moses. Because the word has become flesh And revealed the glory of God that no one else had ever seen. God, thank you that your glory is now seen in the face of Jesus Christ. You are a God who forgives. But you are also a God who will not overlook wickedness. And that is why the cross happened. Perhaps this morning someone needs to say, Jesus died for me. In my place. He suffered the consequences of the guilty. And in my place, he demonstrated the love for sinners and believe in him and experience what it is to know him. But many of us do know the Lord, but like Moses, we need to pray, Lord, show me your glory so I know you better yet. And thank you that even in eternity, you will not be exhausted. You are infinitely beautiful. In Christ I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.